From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening down the line on one of our affiliate stations across North America, the podcast, uh, the Conspiracy Show, and Zoomer Radio apps. Uh, those of you watching the live stream on YouTube and those of you hanging out in the live YouTube chat, uh, however, and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't already done so, check out the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, and uh, hit that sub button. We're just shy of 1,000 subs. Uh, my new podcast, of course, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Conspiracy Unlimited. And uh, please say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Uh, Paracas, uh, if you haven't uh, found it on a map, it's a, it's a desert uh, peninsula located within uh, Pisco province on the south coast of Peru. That's where you'll find Paracas. And it is here where a Peruvian archaeologist, Julio Tello, uh, made an amazing discovery uh, back in 1928, a massive and elaborate graveyard containing tombs filled with the remains of individuals with large, elongated skulls, the largest elongated skulls found anywhere in the world. And these have become known as the Paracas skulls. In total, more than 300 of these skulls were found, some of which date back 3,000 years. And uh, they created uh, considerable waves uh, several years ago, 2014, I think, when a, a geneticist undertook preliminary DNA tests and um, I believe the reports were kind of murky or unknown. Uh, this this um, geneticist found uh, the uh, mitochondrial DNA had mutations unknown in any human primate or uh, animal known so far. A second round of DNA tests have now been carried out. Some saying the results are just as controversial, leading to further speculation the skull's former owners may not have been from this planet. Now, I, on Friday, uh, Nephilim researcher L.A. Marzuli held a live global symposium on Los Angeles in which he had a team of um, researchers uh, to talk about this DNA test, and he's here to talk about it now. L.A. is an author, lecturer, filmmaker. He's penned 10 books, including the Nephilim trilogy, which made the CBA bestsellers list. He received an honorary doctorate for these series for, from his uh, mentor, uh, Dr. I.D.E. Thomas. And um, he has also uh, been honored with the Gold Medallion Award from Chuck Misler at the uh, K-House Conference in 2014. His series, On the Trail of the Nephilim, and uh, Part 2 are uh, full-color oversized books, which uncover startling evidence that there has been a massive cover-up of what he believes are the remains of the Nephilim, the giants mentioned in the Bible. And a great pleasure to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, L.A. Marzulli. L.A., how are you? Richard, I'm doing really well. Is there any possibility of, of getting your volume up? i got my cell phone turned up all the way. I can barely hear what you're saying. I've got it on speaker, and I've got the speaker jammed in my ear. So it's it's uh, very difficult. But I'm, I'm doing really well, sort of recovering uh, from the conference, um, it was <clears throat> just great to see everybody bring bring the so-called, uh, you know, bring our team together. 
Uh, a lot of the members had not seen each other. For instance, Rick, Rick Woodward had never met, who was a, our, one of our anthropologists, had never met Mondo Gonzalez, the archaeologist. So it was, it was just really great to have everybody talk. We did two wonderful sit-down dinners together, um, and obviously the conversation was fast and furious. But uh, you know what? The, the bottom, before you get into this too much, you know, the bottom line is um, we, I'm not claiming these are alien skulls that are from, we don't know what we're looking at yet. And that's, I, I'm always backing off the whole sensationalistic angle. Um, you know, let, let's take a scientific approach here, which is what the team is trying to do. Uh, we have no conclusions on anything. All we know is that the, the DNA is pointing to a Middle Eastern and European ancestry for some of, of the skulls that we were able to test, not all, but many of them. But there's also the skulls have certain morphological differences which are not present in Homo sapiens sapiens. So it's, um, you know, we're, we're off to the races here. And the reason why we held the conference was to basically uh, share the data, what we have, and to the people. How long did it take uh, to negotiate to get permission to to take these skulls uh, and subject them to this DNA testing? Because they're in a museum down there in Peru. How long did that take? Well, the actual... Um, we started back in 2013. Um, we went through three archaeologists before we got to Mondo, which is our fourth archaeologist. And all these guys were accredited, and they were bona fide archaeologists, but they they couldn't move the ball down the field, uh, as it were, with all due respect. And so what Mondo did is he created uh, the paperwork that we needed and outlined what we were trying to do, and he's got a master's degree of archaeology. And um, that it, it took basically um, three years ago until 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 now to finish this phase of of um, you know our research. But basically, once Mondo got the paperwork, about two years to actually from start to finish to get to get the um, approval. And then when we went down, we took samples from the ICA ICA the ICA Museum as well as Senior Juan's Paracas History Museum in Paracas, uh, took all those samples and basically flagged and tagged them, tagged and bagged them, and Chase Plotsky, our, our forensic field expert, was responsible for that. And we uh, gave them to Ruben Soto, who was the archaeologist at ICA, and he had to take them and show them to the Minister of Culture where they examined each of the samples. Now, they didn't take them out of the the sealed and taped vials. They didn't do that. But they looked at them and numbered them. That process took another four to five months, which means that we had to go back and retrieve the samples, which we did. Um, I had letters, formal letters uh, from the Minister of Culture. Okay. Let me ask you, is there anyone out there, and I'm sure there are, the cynics, uh, you can find them on Snopes.com, who are still clinging to this idea that these elongated skulls are cranial abnormalities or that they are, well, they are cranial abnormalities in terms of humans, but that they have, been, they are the product of a process of binding the skull from infancy. Is there anyone who, who still gives that any credence? Oh, yeah. A mainstream archaeologist. That's the, and I had an email from some woman uh, who's never examined our data, never examined the evidence, and all she's doing is regurgitating the party line that all these skulls were cradle headboarded, which is what 
Mondo Gonzalez is our archaeologist. Um, Rick Woodward is our anthropologist. Dr. Alde is a medical doctor. And Dr. War uh, Dr. Malcolm Warren is a chiropractor. You put all these guys together, um, and we start, we start examining the skulls. Um, you know, an archaeologist is not looking at the, these skulls, let's say, the same way that, um, are you still there? Yes, I am. I'm hearing you. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. That, the way, let's say, a medical doctor would. And that was, or even an anthropologist. It was Rick Woodward's work. I mean, he, he reached out to me in an email a while back, a couple of years ago, and said, L.A., there are morphological differences in these skulls. There's no way that, that, that and no way that it resulted from cranial deformation, cranial headboarding. And what we have here is we have a, 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 what's called a brain hole in, in layman's terms. Uh, in scientific terms, it's called the foramen magnum. It's where the skeletal structure attaches to the base of the skull. You, there, there's no place to bind the skull and move the rear plate, the occipital plate, forward. You know, towards the the foramen magnum. Right. In many of the of the Paraka skulls, and this is really one of the major smoking guns: the structural morphological differences of the Paraka skulls, including the foramen condyles, which are completely different than human beings. The the, the hole is smaller; it's shaped differently. The condyles are way more robust; they're shaped differently. And some of the skulls, the foramen ovales, are completely absent. I mean, we are looking at what we believe are genetic anomalies in these skulls. And, you know, when we got into this, um, we obviously realized that, yes, yeah, some of the skulls were, were cradle headboarded. We're not disputing that. You know, cranial deformation was practiced. In some tribes, it still is practiced in, in certain parts of the world. So we're not disputing that. We're saying that the early Paracas from 3,500 years ago have morphological differences and genetic differences, which rewrite history as far as we know more testing needs to be done that's why we're on the trail uh, we are desperately looking for a we work with several labs lab is the paleo dna lab um, in canada and they are very transparent um, i met Stephen and renee frappietro it's a husband and wife team up there they've done a lot of our sequencing um, we've also done sequencing in other other labs at different places and but the paleo DNA in Canada is the one that will let us use their name. But that's that's a geneticist, let's say. Both of them are geneticists. We're looking for a geneticist on our team. That, that's what we're looking for. So if any of you are out there listening to the show that are real geneticists, please email me at la at lamarzuli.net. We have information uh, sequencing from um, next generation sequencing which was done at a very prestigious university. It's the data is voluminous, but we have no one to read it and interpret it. How so, how difficult? Yeah. The, well, the music is coming up here, LA. We're going to break away, but um, okay. uh, when we when we come back, I want to find out a little bit about mitochondrial DNA. Uh, um, imagine extracting that from a, a skull that's three thousand thirty five hundred years old, uh, and um, th that DNA is still intact. To some extent, and then we'll maybe talk about uh, the the prospect of identifying the the nuclear DNA. We'll do all of that when we come back. L. A. Marzuli is with us. We're talking about the Paracas skulls, these elongated skulls in Peru. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. This is the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. L.A. Marzulli is with us. We're talking about the elongated skulls. And on Friday, uh, he live-streamed a, um, a symposium, and most of the team members uh, were there. Dr. Malcolm Warren, the chiropractor, Rick Woodward, the anthropologist. Uh, L.A., of course, Mondo Gonzalez, the uh, the archaeologist. Dr. Michael Alde, the medical doctor. Um, the forensic expert, Chase, is it Klotsky or Klitsky? Uh, yeah, Chase Klotsky. Yeah. What was her role? Well, Chase is a, is a forensic field expert. Um, what she did is she brought um, and collected the samples and tagged and bagged everything. I mean, she set up a sterile environment at ECA. Um, th- there was none. They took us into a room. It certainly wasn't sterile. And who knows, you know, DNA floating all over. Sterilized the table, took out these very large sheets of sterilized paper, put those down. So we created an environment uh, where we could take samples. Uh, we also took my DNA, Mondo's DNA, and Richard Shaw's DNA. Richard's a filmmaker and a good friend and the co-producer of the Watchers series. So Richard videoed everything and, and created this wonderful little uh, composite video, which we showed at, at the conference on Friday. By the way, the live streaming had a major glitch. Um, they had audio problems. And we are, I've been in contact with uh, the man who is, is getting it up on the net um, where it's, it's not all go yet, but he's now uploading uh, parts of the conference. So we're hoping by tomorrow early um, he'll have the whole thing up, but we don't know yet. So it's still, too, you know, the people who have signed up, and there were many people that have signed up and many people that are continuing to sign up, be patient. Um, probably by tomorrow sometime, uh, it'll, everything will be up and running and you'll be able to watch the proceedings. But Chase um, was instrumental, sterile as possible. And then the chain of evidence, tagging and bagging the samples that are coming out so nothing is confused. We took pictures of every artifact that we took samples from. And all this, of course, was legal because it took us, you know, like I said, couple of years to get the uh, uh, the permits that we require for the Ministry of Culture. We have sent down the DNA results to the Ministry of Culture, and we're hoping that they will allow us to go into phase two, which is a proper archaeological dig. All right. So the mitochondrial DNA, that comes from the mother's side, correct? Correct. So let's be clear. Uh, it, the mitochondrial DNA... Uh, identified these skulls as belonging to what, Heplo Group what? Well, it varies. Um, what modern-day archaeologists, mainstream archaeologists, uh, will tell you that um, what they're looking for, what, what would be the industry, is Haplo Group B. And Haplo Group B uh, is basically an Asian origin. In other words, the theory is, it's called the Beringian Land Bridge Series. Right. That at the end of the last ice age, uh, people migrated from Asia into the New World across what is now the Bering Strait, which is a waterway. But then it was the Bering Land Bridge, and these people came down into the Americas and, and fanned out, and, and that became the uh, Amerindians that we see. We're saying, yeah, we get that. We're not disputing that. But we're also saying that, that people travel. And people explore. Um, I am a I am a diffusionist, and in, in archaeological circles, there are two two types of belief. 
the prevailing paradigm is isolationist, that people don't travel, that they stay in one place, and, and culture moves very slowly. The fusionists say, no, people travel, people explore, people jump on ships, hike over the next mountain, whatever, uh, to see what's on the other side. And and I showed a clip of Thor Heyerdahl, uh, who in um, decades ago, I think it was like 1975, he built a replica of a reed boat, and he called it Ra 2. And, and he sailed basically from Safi, which is, you know, near Morocco, um, out the Mediterranean and uh, in, through the Atlantic and wound up like days later in the island of Barbados without a compass, without anything, without a map. Now, you know, he had a, he had a life support team, another boat that was, that was pacing them, okay? But, they were, you know, they weren't going, well, where's land? They were just, they were allowing the trade winds to blow them. His hypothesis was that people came from Europe and, and the Middle East, you know, thousands of years ago right. and may have reached the New World. Well, he proved it with Raw. Right. He reached the island of Barbados, and that's in the New World. So these elongated skulls, the mitochondrial DNA, points to their origin being in, you mentioned the Caucasus Mountains, and the extreme Eastern Europe, correct? Yeah, it, it, it's both. It's the Middle East, Eastern Europe, um, different haplogroups in different places. And that's what's, just, that's what's fascinating. As, as I said, and I, I stated this in, in numerous interviews, I mean, this, at least if the, the, the data that we have right now rewrites history. I mean, that's all there is to it, if, if people are fair and honest. Now, we've, we've done 58 samples, 58 samples, and, and the blowback is always, well, it's contamination. And, and our counter-argument to that is, how do you know it's contamination? It's a strongman argument. Right. You say, as the results don't fit your paradigm. So how many results do we need before at least we can agree that maybe we should take a second look at this? And if it was just the DNA, that would be one thing. The morphological differences, Richard, with these skulls put it in a whole different category. Um, we may be looking at a subspecies of human beings. We don't know. Right. And we're, and we're, not, we're not drawing any conclusions. I mean, we are, we are applying the scientific method as best as we possibly can. With, with rigorous controls, and I really mean that. Uh, it's all in the press conference, which is about, I don't know, about three and a half, four hours of video. Um, and, and, you know, the link is there, and people will be able to go and see it for themselves. Because everyone, Brian Forrester presented, Richard Shaw presented, Chase Klosky. Um, of course, I was the, 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 sort of the MC, and I also presented and outlined their hypotheses. But when it, where the, the, really the, the goods begin to happen with Mondo Gonzalez, the DNA, that's the first punch. The second punch is Rick Woodward coming on the record and, and informing us that, look, there are morphological differences in the Paracas skulls which are not, um, let's say, akin to a normal human being. Right. Something, no doubt about it. So setting aside the whole Nephilim question, again, this is history in the making, history changing because... If the mitochondrial DNA points to the Middle East and the Caucasus Mountains and Eastern Europe, there weren't supposed to be Eastern Europeans uh, in South America 3,500 years ago. So that exactly. turns the narrative on its head. Uh, yeah, it, it, stand, it stands the narrative on its head. It rewrites history. 
And, you know, right now the academics have not gotten hold of, of any of our information um, because it's not available yet. It will be, like I, I keep reiterating this, but more than like sometime, uh, the entire conference will be up and people will be able to watch it for those that have the embed code uh, that got paid for it. In the meantime, um, we are making DVDs, which we'll be selling. Uh, there's a book, it's a compilation book, by all eight of us wrote a chapter in the book. It's about 150 pages, four-color book, lots of great photos. And I, I would say that that's a must because everybody weighs in, um, and it's different. You know, when people write, it's different than speaking. So we'll be selling that. Uh, and, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the funds, all the, all the funding for the live streaming goes back into our DNA fund. So it, it costs right now upwards of 135, 140,000, somewhere. I haven't, I haven't done the total math yet to get to this point. And we had a wonderful benefactor. We just call them the G's because they want to, re, want to remain anonymous. But without their generosity and their belief in the project, we never would have gotten this far. Um, it's expensive to put people in the field, to feed them, to give them airfare, put them in a hotel. Um, and then, of course, the lab is expensive. So, you know, all this, it adds up. Absolutely. Adds up. And like I said, we've been through thousands of dollars to get to this point. So is at some point, would you be able uh, to extract nuclear DNA and find out the other half of the equation. So if the, if the, from the maternal line it's coming from humans in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, will the nuclear DNA allow you to determine the other half of the equation? Yes. And that's, that's what we find. That's the goal. Um, until we get nuclear DNA, we have no idea who these people really were. If we get nuclear DNA, here's the hypothetical. Let's say it comes back unknown primate. Now what? Right. So now what do we do with unknown primates? And that that basically, we're off to the races. So, you know, more testing needs to be done. That's why we're on the trail. That's why we're, we're, we're pressing uh, to get the archaeological dig, the formal archaeological dig um, in, in, the, in the Chongos necropolis. Um, a, lot more, a lot more testing needs to be done. But we revealed the evidence, we revealed the, the data on Friday at the press conference because we reached a point where we need further funding, number one. But number two, we want other people to check what we're doing. And if we're wrong, then tell us we're wrong. But if we're right, if we're right, then, you know, people in, that, in the scientific and academic community need to start taking a hard look at this uh, ba- uh, because yeah good based on the skulls and i don't know uh, in addition to the skulls when the the tomb was located back in 1928 whether there are other bones found but can we can you draw us a picture of what these let's call them humanoids what they may have looked like how tall they might have been well they're not giants that's the first thing and I'm going to, obviously we're on the record here, but personal belief, which I have to be very careful that it doesn't, um, let's say, color the investigation in any way. 
So when I presented this, I just presented our hypotheses, which was right. this, that 3,500 years ago, um, when Joshua and Caleb prosecuted the war in what's known as the Promised Land, there were these these enigmatic tribes that were living there, the Rephaim, uh, the Anakim, um, the, the Zanzumi, the Emims. And all these, these names, when translated, for instance, the Anakim means the long necks. It doesn't necessarily denote giants, but we don't know. Um, so it seems like perhaps, and this is conjecture, that these tribes that were there um, may have had different genetic characteristics which were reflected in their name, the Anakim, the long necks. The Paraka skulls, because of the position of the foramen magnum, we feel that it, they may have had longer necks. And Josie? Well, we're getting a bit of a drop there. Okay, so they may have had longer necks, and then after that, if you could pick up the on that. Of these giants right. were uh, openly on display at the time of his writing, which is about 2,000 years ago. And, and he said they had countenances that were so different from mortal men. So they looked really different. And so you've got the, the biblical narrative, you've got Josephus, the Jewish historian, and you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, all validating that these tribes were there. So my personal theory is that what we may be looking at is one of the tribes long ago. There is other evidence that points to that, because the Paracas people wind up on the shores of Paracas, Peru, about 3,500 years ago, roughly. It fits the timeline. They're not like 10,000 years old when they arrived there. It's about 34, 35, 3,300 years ago. That fits the timeline. So it's, it's extremely interesting. And again, what, what, our, what we've done so far is we have more questions than answers at this point. But we are greatly intrigued by what we are saying. Uh, so, again, just because there was a few drops there, let me just summarize. Uh, so, 3,500 years ago, we're talking Old Testament, the, um, the, uh, these various tribes, who may or may not have been giants, but had certain genetic differences, obviously, were, were driven out of the Promised Land, and then all of a sudden we have, uh, these, um, humanoids arriving in South America and Central America with these elongated uh, skulls, which are not the result of, of um, uh, cradle boarding. Uh, so then the question becomes, okay, so are they, in fact, um, are they, in fact, these, these tribes that were driven out of the Promised Land? Uh, now, they had red hair. Uh, some of the pictures I've seen, we, we, we see these wisps of red hair uh, is is that significant? Well, yes, it is, because uh, um, Amerindians do not have red hair. The baby skull, which we unwrapped, which is 1,935 years, um, had strawberry blondish hair. Um, and when we had the hair tested, the, the, guy, the guy that was testing it just said, well, it's definitely not African, but I'm not sure what I'm looking at. And uh, it, it, it seems to be very fine. So, look, we, we've, been, we've been on the trail looking at all this, and it starts to add up. In Paracas, there are date palms. Date palm trees grow in the Middle East. They don't grow in Paracas. 
They're not indigenous to the area. What are all these date palms doing there? And no one has an answer for it. Um, uh, Brian Forrester has discovered that that much of the uh, Paracas pottery is very fine, very thin. The walls of the vessels are very thin, which seems to point to the use of a wheel. We know that the wheel was, was you know, it did not exist in, in pre-Columbian uh, Peru. It came over with the conquistadors. So, again, um, the Paracas are depicted wearing turbans. Uh, most people in Peru don't wear turbans, but people in the Middle East do. So it's very, very interesting, extremely intriguing. Uh, are these the remnants of the Nepaline? Well, we have no idea. All right, uh, L.A., I've got to jump in here. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss the elongated skulls. And we'll also uh, give you some links for when that uh, symposium is back online and available for uh, purchase. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and L.A. Marzuli right after this. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a programming note. Next week on the show... We'll talk about divine water. Uh, and then in the uh, second half, Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us. Uh, her new book is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. That's uh, next week. Right now, L.A. Marzulli uh, stays with us. And uh, we are talking about uh, latest, the latest DNA testing performed on these uh, Paracas skulls in Peru, these elongated skulls. The mitochondrial DNA uh, suggests... Um, a, a haplogroup from Eastern Europe, the Middle East, the Caucasus Mountains. Now, these skulls, keep in mind, are 3,500 years old. What are Eastern Europeans doing in South America 3,500 years ago? It doesn't fit the official archaeological or anthropological narrative. Uh, now, the there were mutations uh, found in the DNA, I, I think, in the original uh, test back in 2014, uh, did that definitively rule out that this group could 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 or could not breed with with humans? Do we know? Let me let me, let me set the record straight as best as I possibly can. First of all, oh, we've never been able to. We've only done carbon dating on on two artifacts. One was one thousand nine hundred thirty-five years which is pretty much the end of the Paracas. The other one was about 800 years old. So we haven't, we haven't tested anything at that 3,500 years old, or let's say just 3,000 years old. Okay. Uh, the closest we've gone is 2,000. Second of all, we threw out the initial findings by that so-called geneticist. We don't reference that at all. That was in 2014. That was, uh, that was not our work. That was someone else's. That was, um, you know, it was an email which never should have gone out, never should have been posted, but it was. And that, in my opinion, was just horrible. That's why, that's why we, we, we did it the right way. You know, we, we um, took the time to get a team together of people that are skilled in the field, like Mondo Gonzalez, who wrote, wrote the paperwork that we needed to do. We got the proper permits from the Minister of Culture went down and, and tagged and bagged everything with a team of professionals. I mean, the, the process was, was um, I believe, stellar. I defy anybody to do it better than what we did. And I really mean that. Uh, without, unless they have a portable safe room, you know, where the room is 
a clean room out there, completely clean, in a, you know, with an air duct and everything else, which didn't exist at the Inca Museum. So Chase did a wonderful job of, of creating a feral environment for us. We wore suits, disposable suits, which we changed after every skull. So we had nine skulls to sample out of the nine we did eight, because uh, one of them we just immediately looked at as, as human. But the other ones that we did, we would wear um, we, we would head to toe, full body suits, hair masks, you know, goggles, glasses, um, face masks, uh, so we're not breathing on the thing, double sleeves, double gloves, boots. And then once we were finished that, we would go out of the room, outside, strip down, get out of the suits, move those to the side. We had compressed air. And we would blow each other off with compressed air, don new suits, and go back in. And we were we were told by um, other geneticists to examine the protocols that what we did was was really good. I mean, we really went overboard. Right. So the idea of contamination just wouldn't immediately be be stated. So it's it's it's, it's their fallback position. Oh, it's contaminated. Okay. So then, what about the genetic anomalies of the skulls? Because that's genetic, in, in our opinion. In Dr. Alday's opinion. In Malcolm Warren, this is not the result of cradle headboarding. It's something else. Right. So it's 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 very complex, very complex. If and the data, yeah. look, the data is the data. The data is the data. People are going to want to start having an attack, which is what they always do. And at, at the conference, you know, I wasn't mentioning um, the Bible per se, or the, I never talked about the Nephilim. Those are those are my personal beliefs. But that, that, that's off the table. We're not talking at the data. We're looking at this strictly through a scientific lens. What does the data say? What does it point to? What does it tell us? And the story, which is why there are no conclusions. If the uh, nuclear DNA testing comes back undetermined, what do you do with that? Well, let's say it comes back undetermined or unknown primate. Um, then what you would do is you would pay to, to sequence, to try to sequence the genome. In other words, and that, that's a lot of money. When you actually um, start, start sequencing everything out, you, you map out and, and see where, where it's different, you know, which, which particular portions of the sequencing is different than a normal human being. You know, in other words, what what you look at is, oh, is it? It kind of looks like chimpanzee. Does it look like an ape? Is it completely unknown? Is there nothing in the gen bank which matches? Well, are there certain similarities in certain parts? And that's why you need a geneticist. Um, that's that's way be. I mean, I'm not obviously I'm not trained. I'm a researcher. I write books. I make movies, and I and I lecture on different subjects. But a geneticist is trained in this. And like Stephen Trapietro up at the Paleo DNA Lab is not he's a geneticist, but he's not trained on the next generation sequencing, which gives you the type of voluminous data that takes a computer sometimes a day or two to crunch, just to crunch the data and, and upload it from from the, the site where, where the data sits into that computer, which is a very I've seen the program it's incredibly sophisticated, and that's where you can look at. Even with the mitochondrial DNA, you can look at, oh my gosh, there's, there's, there's sequencing here, 
which is completely different than which, what should be there. All right, L.A., I've got to jump in here. We'll take another time out, we'll, and then we'll continue to the top of the hour. And um, we'll continue to delve into these elongated skulls, the Paracas skulls, the DNA testing, completed at least at this stage, the mitochondrial DNA indicating an origin in Eastern Europe. And yet they were found in Peru, and these things are, well, at least between 800 and 2,000 years old. Doesn't fit the narrative. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. L.A. Marzulli uh, is with us talking about the elongated skulls. L.A., give us the links of the websites uh, for where, in a few days, hopefully people can see this symposium online. Well, right, you know, we've had, like I said at the, at the top of the show, we had enormous problems with the live streaming. Um, I've never seen anything like it. The, the tech guy was pulling his hair out. He'd never seen anything like it. Um, but it's so there was no live streaming on Friday. People have been incredibly patient and, and understanding. And it's now Sunday, and we're starting to put things up on, on the link. It will probably still not but if you're interested, you can go to lamarzuli.net, lamarzuli.net, and, you know, pay the $10. And um, once it becomes available, you'll be able to watch the whole thing. Um, I'm going to leave it up there for at least two to three weeks so uh, the folks have plenty of time to watch it. Um, I think when people see the presentations uh, in, in Toto and, and you watch the progression of speakers, I think people will realize that there's really something going on here. I mean, there's no, and I really mean this, Richard, there's no hyperbole here. There's nothing like that. There's, here's the data. This is what the data is saying. That's it. That's all we're doing. And you can't argue with the data. You can say it's contaminated, but that's a straw man argument. And that's why we bring in the morphological differences, the structural differences, the place of the foramen magnum, the fact that the foramen magnum is in a completely different place, Totally different size. The foramen condyles, uh, 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 condyles, right, rather, look completely different than a normal human being. The foramen ovales are, in some cases, are not there. They're not there, and that's huge because those those two holes are where nerve endings and blood vessels go up, which work the face, facial muscles. So again, it's it's. Um, Something's going on here, and that's why we that's why we had the press conference. It's time to get the data out and have other people look at it. Would you expect then, assuming this is a viable population, that they were a viable population? We we should expect right. then to find more elongated skulls. Again, not cradle headboarding skulls, but the same type elsewhere around the world and dating, let's say, throughout different periods of history, maybe even more more uh, more recent. Well, we do, and and that's that's what's so interesting about it. There are elongated skulls. Now, I'll, I'll jump over to my neck of the woods here outside of Los Angeles. There's a little island called Catalina, and there was a, a primitive archaeologist. I use the term extremely loosely by the name of Rob Glidden, and he and he did he was hired by the Hay Museum, later gobbled up by the Smithsonian. T21. And he conducted very primitive archaeological digs um, on the Catalina Island and other 
in the Channel Island chain. It stretches from Santa Barbara down to San Diego. Well, he had this cache of records that were missing for decades. And a, another researcher informed me that the cache of records had been found. So I went out to Catalina, and I was able to, to make a donation to the museum there, which allowed me to go out and look at the records, and I did so. And they were pictures from 1919, 1921, black and white photos, five by seven. And within an hour or two, I found a, a collection of photos. This is what I found. I found elongated skulls, six fingers, six fingers. I found a skeleton in situ with Ralph Glidden standing over it, holding a shovel. And we had that photograph analyzed by three separate researchers who put the skeleton at nine feet. Now, I published that. I was on the History Channel and talked about that. I published it in my book, I'm a Trail of a Nephilim, Volume 2. Richard Shaw, the director of Watchers, we, we went out to look at the museum because we wanted to do like a follow-up piece. We walked into the museum, and there in the Ralph Gordon section of the museum was my picture that I had discovered and, you know, and, and had analyzed. It was blown up from 5 by 7 to like maybe 18 by a foot high, except the giant was no longer in the picture. They cropped the giant skeleton out of the picture. And that's how the game is played. That's how the game is played. So we took pictures of that, and that went viral. And I wrote, I wrote pieces on it. But Chief Joseph Riverwind, who's part of a team, went to the island several months ago, and he told me that they've now reversed the picture again, and the original picture is up on the wall. Uh, I, I'm going to go out and see it for myself at the end of this month sometime. So, so the original picture with this pioneering archaeologist with a shovel in hand and the, uh, and the, the giant. They hold tenaciously to it. Hmm. Uh, let's set aside the um, the DNA testing for a moment, because I know you don't want to link that DNA work with your sort of your Nephilim work here. Um, but, so let's separate that. But let's talk about uh, any possible connections between these elongated skulls and some other things in in uh, the Paracas region of Peru that are out of place, maybe structures, that sort of thing. Well, not necessarily in Paracas per se, but in other areas of Peru, especially when you think of Oyotintambo, when you think of Cusco, um, there are megalithic structures. And Machu Picchu, been to all those places. And in fact, we're doing a tour in July, which we haven't advertised yet, but we will soon. And what's amazing about this, Richard, again, the standard archaeological spiel is that the Inca built everything. And, you know, I just, once again, I just say, well, show me. How did the Inca take andesite stone, which is very hard on a most hardened scale, and they have copper chisels, and how did, they, how did they carve the stone? How did they transport the stone? How did they make polygonal shapes? And there's really no answers to this. And, and so the straw man argument is, well, it's here, so they must have done it. Well, that's, you know, says who? I mean, obviously there are two cultures. There's a culture here that created 
these these incredible um, this incredible stonework, which predates the Inca. Um, and then we have the Inca coming in and using indigenous rocks and sort of filling in the gaps or the holes between these incredibly megalithic stones. And these megalithic stones, you know, some of them weigh upwards well over 100 tons. How do you move them? I mean, even in modernity, you, you can do it, but that's a lot of weight. And, and the quarry is 40 miles away, and there are no beasts of burdens in Peru. They're not there. So you, you've got more problems. And, of course, you know, these archaeologists make these statements, but they never back it up. Well, show me. Show me how you carve andesite stone with a copper chisel in the Bronze Age. Show me. Just show me how you do it. Show me how you transport it. Show me how you create polygonal shapes. And the shape, Richard, the shape of the stone, the cuts go all the way back. They're not just surface cuts for dressing. That when you, when you see a line in the stone and another angle coming off of that, that angle goes clear through the stone, and the next stone fits it perfectly, absolutely perfectly. And, I mean, you explain how you can do that. And there's no explanation for it. I mean, I've, sh I've shown it to stonemasons, to archaeologists, and they laugh nervously, and rightfully so. They because laugh nervously. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, just got a couple minutes left here, but I wanted to ask you, I'm thinking it might be related. And you mentioned bronze before, and we had the Bronze Age in Europe. There's not enough copper right. in Europe to explain the Bronze Age. There is a lot of copper, you know, north of, uh, or on the shores of, of Lake Superior. And there seems to be evidence that there was a major copper mining operation there yeah. uh, about, what, 3,500 years ago. Yeah, there, there's tons of copper that go missing. And this is my alternative archaeologist, such as myself. I'm not an archaeologist, but I have an alternative opinion out of all this. I mean, when you go to places like Cahokia, the mound builders, you go to the Great Lakes and you read about the copper, uh, tons of it just missing. How does that work? When our, our discovery of the Nephilim, what we call the Nephilim lands, which was found up near up in Michigan, at an abandoned campsite. There's no, we have no idea where it came. It wasn't in situ, but we've tested this thing. There are isotopes that come from England and Turkey. So what are we looking at here? What's that thing doing there, right? Mm. And it's a bronze artifact. It's a bronze artifact, and it's a lance. It's not a sword. And it doesn't look like anything that I've ever seen before, and we've shown it to some uh, archaeologists, and they're mystified. They're not, well, obviously it's a lance, but this goes back to the oral tradition of Native American First Nation people, which state that these giants would come in with these lances, they would skewer the braves and hold them up. They could put three braves on one of these lances. And there's a shot with the owner of the land, Chief Joseph and myself, standing side in front of us, and guess what? So, you know, it's just, there's a hidden history, as Scotty Walter would say. There's a hidden history which lies just under the surface. And this stuff is everywhere. And uh, that's why we're on the trail, Richard. That's why further research is needed. And if, if your people are interested, um, we should have everything up, hopefully tomorrow. The live streaming, if you're interested, lamarzuli.net. lamarzuli.net. The proceeds from this go right back into the DNA fund. So there you go. L.A. Marzuli. And Marzuli is m a R Z U L L I. 
That's correct. net. Thanks for this. I appreciate it, L.A. Talk soon and good luck. All right, Richard. Take care. Congrats on the show. Thank you. My thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, Ryan White. Next week, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, and Divine Water should be a good one. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, which you hear in the dark. Speak in the light. What I say in a whisper proclaimed from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.